Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 388th edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting in this our ninth year across the world from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, and this is the place where it all happens. This is where technology meets entertainment. There's something spectacular on every day, 365 days a year. It's a very cool place. Have you been to London lately? If you have, it's likely that you've spent a lot of time in Westminster. I know that when I go to London, Westminster seems to capture me. It's undoubtedly the tourist capital of London. You've got Buckingham Palace and Big Ben and the Palace of Westminster and Hyde Park and Piccadilly Circus, Trafalgar Square, Oxford Street. Almost all the famous attractions are in Westminster. So there's a really good chance that you spent a bit of time there. It's also home to the world's most famous pop culture pedestrian crossing, which is an historic site, pedestrian crossing, historic site. Can you believe it? It's the Abbey Road crossing that John, Paul, George and Ringo famously walked across. I think, if, and I haven't seen it for quite a long while, but I, I think it's the one where Paul's in bare feet. And... Uh, it's a, it's a great photograph. So now that's a, um, a grade two historic site and traffic around there is a nightmare because of all the attractions and particularly around Abbey Road. So pedestrians are a protected species. I mean, they're pretty protected everywhere, but they're really protected in Westminster. And the students from four to 11 cross this road and use that crossing to reach a public park across from the elementary school. And parents have been concerned about their kids being mown down in all the traffic because there is a shed load of traffic and there's, where there's traffic, there's always some idiot who wants to um, who wants to speed and pass people where they shouldn't and do all that. But the uh, that crossing didn't have an accident rate that justified a complete redesign of the area. Normally, if it's a dangerous crossing, they'll redesign the whole area um, to make it safer, but this didn't quite warrant that. So instead, the government was looking for a much simpler way to protect people on the crosswalk. So it took inspiration from a crosswalk in Iceland, which is a 3D design, and when you drive up towards it, it looks like you're going to into a, run into a foot-high concrete barrier. I mean, it's really amazing. You'd swear that it was a foot-high concrete barrier. So while the Icelandic version only works from one way, so you come one way, it looks like a, a, a good solid barrier, and come the other way, and it doesn't. The London crossing looks three-dimensional from both sides, and... Uh, so while the effect's visible to pedestrians, the effect is amplified if you see it from a moving vehicle. You're hurtling down the street and you see this foot-high concrete barrier in front of you. You think, holy shit, I'd better stop or at least slow down. 
and the City of Westminster has completed work on it. It's um, rendered in absolutely eye-popping three-dimensional design. It's, when you see it, it's phenomenal. The crossing initially scares the hell out of you and gets you to slow down really quickly. So 3D zebra crossings have replaced boring old flat crossings. In America, they're called crosswalks, incidentally, in small towns and big cities in countries including China, India, Germany and France. Iceland's mind-bending 3D pedestrian right-of-way. It just seems to float above the asphalt and it just looks like a solid brick wall. A similar 3D crossing in Delhi, India, led to a sharp decline in average vehicle speeds from 31 miles an hour to 19 miles an hour. It scares the bejesus out of you. The 3D zebra crossing could be, could be the future of road safety. Far from being a brilliant innovation that makes the ordinary look eye-grabbing and modern, the 3D effect helps drivers to see the crossing easier. So the 3D crossing on its own now is a major tourist attraction. <laughs> so it's, it, while they're trying to make the roads safer for kids to cross, they're bringing a hell of a lot more people who want to look at the zebra crossing or the crosswalk and who want to drive towards it to see it. So, and it's just around the corner from the... Um, Beatles Abbey Road Studios. So it's, it's quite remarkable. The effectiveness of employing an optical illusion to slow traffic and improve safety along a particular stretch of road isn't necessarily feasible for all areas. It depends on the street design. And while any effort to improve pedestrian safety is a positive, floating crosswalks do present somewhat of a double-edged sword. While the disarming appearance of these crossings has proven effective in getting drivers to slow down, it also attracts hundreds of thousands of people wanting to engage in an impromptu photo shoot across the crossing that John, Paul, George and Ringo made famous. So if someone approaches, it looks like an obstacle in the road, and each white stripe on the road looks like a three-dimensional, two-foot-high block of cement. So you can imagine when you're driving along, you're watching the road, and then all of a sudden you see this thing jump up in front of you. It focuses the eye on the road rather than being distracted by anything else around you. Now, the novelty wears off very quickly for locals. They get sick of all the bloody tourists. But for tourists, the opportunity to pose in front of an optical illusion embedded into a city street is extremely appealing. So in the end, you're potentially left with slower moving cars, but a hell of a lot more people dawdling and fiddling with their phones in the middle of the street. The crosswalk's being monitored with a camera to see how many drivers react. Now, one concern is that it's so realistic that drivers will swerve to avoid these bumps. So far, there hasn't been any evidence of that, but I can imagine it. So it served its purpose. There's been no accidents and no children struck by vehicles. So all in all, it's good news.
And if you get my daily 30-second read newsletter, we talked about this in the newsletter and it's got photographs of what it actually looks like and it's really interesting. So um, we've got about 1.7, 1.8 million daily subscribers. It takes just 30 seconds to read and every day we tackle a different subject. Today we talked about plastic in the ocean. Tomorrow I think we talk about cryptocurrency and then we talk about um, logistics. So every day it's something new. So it costs nothing. It's absolutely free. So go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and uh, subscribe. Really easy. And it's, it's one that you can get off to. All you have to do is click on unsubscribe and you're instantly unsubscribed. Do you get those bloody annoying newsletters where no matter what you do, you can't get rid of them? They are a pain in the ass. They, and you just can't get rid of them. They're impossible. Well, this one's easy. But the good thing is you won't want to. Do you see that Google's added interactive elements to email messages? Anybody used this yet? Emails have long been static and they're unchanging, but there's a new update to Gmail. Google's trying to change the old boring email message. The company's new AMP for email allows for things like buttons, checkboxes and image carousels inside the message window. <coughs> Excuse me. Gmail users on desktop will begin to see dynamic emails that are interactive, actionable and can stay current with the freshest information. That means instead of having to click a link to a different website to answer a poll on a different website, you could just do it straight within the email message. And a service like Pinterest will let users browse and save ideas when it sends an email about trending topics. The email can automatically refresh itself to stay current. And while you can answer polls from services like Doodle straight from within the email rather than having to open a link on a different website. So that's all pretty cool. AMP stands for Accelerated Mobile Pages. It's currently supported by Gmail, Yahoo, Yahoo Mail, Outlook.com and Mail.ru. And it's open to other email providers that want to add support. Corporate Gmail accounts using the G Suite product will be able to have administrators turn on the functionality within the next few days. Any AMP emails that are sent to a service that does not support the format will merely look like a regular email message. So that's all pretty cool. Google's own productivity products like Google Docs will start to work with a new format probably by this week so they can be embedded directly into the messengers. So instead of receiving an email every time a user is mentioned in a document, for instance, Gmail now updates that thread and allows users to respond directly or resolve the comment right from the message. So that's pretty brilliant. The dynamic emails begin rolling out to Gmail users on the web this week with mobile support coming soon. Now, this new interactivity is useful and the spec gives Google additional power over what's been a reliable, interoperable standard. And it becomes a new vector through which Google and advertisers can deliver more personalised ads and trackers. And AMP also helps websites load faster. 
but it's been controversial among some publishers who wondered about its utility and cast it as a self-serving effort to extend Google's giant reach across the web. Well, of course it is. That's why they do it. So with AMP for email, Google's tentacles will reach even further. So I'm not knocking them for that. So it's, it's worth noting that in order to ensure security, any company that wishes to generate dynamic emails has to seek Google's approval first. Now, whitelisting makes sense from a security perspective, but it also underscores the power grab by Google that's at play here. When the same interactivity is otherwise just a click away on the web, some users might wonder, well, is the convenience of AMP for emails, is it worth the possible cost in the end? But the move for Google signals its recognition that email communications need to involve. You know, it's pretty boring. You think about emails, they are boring as hell. Well, this, this is a big jump forward, and of course, people will improve on this. Competing, competing productivity and messaging apps have been on the rise. They're everywhere now. Slack, which is a leading messaging service that has replaced email for many businesses and individuals, they now have 10 million daily active users. So that's a bit of a chunk out of Google. Now, my interview guest today is a good guy named Niall Dennehy. He's the co-founder and chief operating officer of Aid Tech. And Aid Tech was the first company in the world to deliver international aid using blockchain technology in 2015. And don't forget, if you're anywhere near Los Angeles next week, CIS, the um, Blockchain Technology Summit, is on I think it's at, let me look, let me look, I'm not sure, it's at, it's at the Los Angeles Convention Centre, it's next Monday and Tuesday, so if you're anywhere near LA, go along, hunt me down, I will be there. This is Bob Pritchard and I'll be back with Niall in just a minute. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. This is where we give you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people. We talk about what they do and their successes. We find it, we try to find out about the challenges they face. And I guess at the bottom of it all, we try to find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, somewhere around 97 or 98% of all new businesses today fail. So what is it that makes that 2% to succeed different than the 98% that fail? I mean, most of the people who have a startup have a good product, maybe not a great product, but have a good product that deserves to um, at least enjoy some success, but they don't. So what is it? Is it the um, is it luck? Is it the um, guidance of the entrepreneur? Have they got some gene that the rest of us don't have? Because it is extremely difficult to create a successful business. We all need all the help we can. So that's why it's important to have mentors. If you don't have a mentor, you're crazy. You should surround yourself with people who know what they're doing, who have done it before. It will save you making a shitload of mistakes, trust me. And you need to take on board the advice that you get from people like my next guest who have been successful several times. So take on board that advice and it will definitely help you. My guest today, Noel Dennehy, I'm speaking to him in Ireland. I don't know whether you've been to Dublin. Great place. I've been up there quite a few times giving speeches. I love it. And Niall is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Aid Tech. Now, they've got offices all over the world. I hadn't heard of them before, but they've got offices all over the planet and they're very successful. They were the first company in the world to deliver international aid using blockchain technology. When you think about blockchain, it makes sense. And uh, I think I've mentioned before, I'm doing an ICO in Africa where we're doing pretty much the same, well, we're delivering, we're delivering aid and we're using the blockchain. That's probably where the similarity finishes. But Niall founded the company in response to the need for transparency and donor engagement. You know, a lot of, uh, there's not much transparency often. And Niall's vision is to position aid tech, it's just A-I-D, T-E-C-H, as a company that can be profitable as well as a company that is socially responsible. And I think that's, that's got to be a good business in this world. Aid Tech's platform enables entitlements like aid and welfare and remittances and donations and healthcare to be digitised and transparently delivered to end users through digital ID and blockchain technology, totally transparent. So, and listen to this. Aid Tech is the current global winner of the City Tech for Integrity Challenge. They received the James Warpenson Game Changer Award for companies using technology to fight corruption, and they got that at the international from the International Monetary Fund. They were also recent winners of the Smart Dubai Blockchain Challenge in 2018, and they're IBM's number one global startup and MasterCard's company of the year. That is a phenomenal record. Really brilliant. Now, prior to his work at AidTech, Niall previously co-founded and led the design and development of numerous award-winning apps and platforms, such as Imprez and PrezX. 
Niall also held senior technology positions in organisations such as HP, Ericsson and LG. So the guy's obviously no idiot, right? Pretty smart. Hi, Niall. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Bob, it's an absolute pleasure to be on the show, and that is by far, bar none, the best intro that I have ever gotten. We like to think that we've invent, we've uh, we've perfected the art of pitching, but I dare say, Bob, that you've perfected the art of pitching. Bob Pritchard, Pr- uh, Pritchard Supreme. Uh, great to be here, and uh, thank you very much, Bob. It's a pleasure. Well, you could be anywhere in the world. You've got offices around the world. You could be anywhere in the world. Why do you want to be in a cold, obviously you're Irish, but why do you want to be in a cold, <laughs> miserable place like Dublin? Uh, we, we see, uh, Bob, we think we're like we're, we're an island. We're out on our own, but we're never on our own. But Dublin, um, Dublin right now, Bob, we did chat beforehand, and you told me about L.A., about how great it is a place to start. We think Dublin is like the new London. It's a little, it's like London on a smaller scale. It's more competitive. It's a better place to set up a business. There's a really great ecosystem developing here. Uh, we're backed by the Irish government. We are, in fact, one of uh, the first blockchain company in the world to be backed by two governments, that being both Singapore, that being Ireland. So we've got the weight of a gov- of two governments behind us. We're a blockchain company. One of the governments happens to be our own. Uh, but you, Dublin is a great place to set up a company. Um, it's much cheaper than London. We're within the European Union. Um, the fintech scene right here, right now, it's really happening. It's a really hot market to be in. Um, but despite the weather, which we're having our best summer in 40 years at the moment, it's generally a great place to live, great place, great place to bring up a family, but ultimately then a very good place to grow a company. Yeah, but it sounds like it. Well, it's got a lot in common with Ireland, hasn't it? I mean, with England, I mean, with London, it's cold and it's wet. Um, <laughs> no, but it's, it's great that... Well, we um, like to think the people might be a little bit more cheery, but that's no disrespect to anybody from England who's listening uh, from London, but... Uh, uh, we think the people make all the difference, and we're we're very proud uh, Irish people over here. But the people really would be. Um, I often say, Bob, the best thing and the worst thing about Ireland is the people. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. And, well, it's great that it's developed into such a big technology hub. How how long's that been taking? How long has that been taking place? It's, it's probably taken a little bit longer, Bob, than it would, than we would have liked. But really, I think, um, ironically, since we had the Great Recession in in Ireland back in 2008, we were probably hit worse than any other country within the European Union. Arguably, us and Greece were were affected the most, given that we're a large or small, we're a dynamic economy. But uh, you would be surprised, Bob. And even aid tech, which I can talk about shortly, we were formed partly because of the uh, you know the Great Recession. I'll, I'll tell you more about that later on. But really, Bob, a lot of people, including uh, people that I know, myself included, set up businesses in the midst of the, uh, the so-called Great Recession. Yeah. And really, since then, whatever it is that we think Irish people, we respond pretty well to adversity. And oftentimes, it takes a crisis really for us to respond. And uh, that's what people are doing. But a lot of the people I know who've created the best companies in Dublin at the moment right now, they've come out of either losing their job in the recession, sure. seeing an opportunity that wasn't there before, um, and it was a good time to start a business, but really I think things have changed a lot in the past 10 years and we've got a really um, strong momentum right now. And the fact that we're in the European Union, we're starting to see a lot of companies from uh, from, from Britain, they're coming here um, in anticipation of what may happen with Brexit coming down the line. Yep. Um, we're seeing a lot of positive stuff happening in Dublin today. So how did ATEC begin? You're in the middle of a recession and 
you know, everything around you is falling apart. You just sort of woke up at 2 o'clock one morning and went, aha, I've got an idea. How did it come about? <laughs> I'll tell you how it came about, Bob. It's, it's mainly down to my, my good friend, my co-founder. I tell people he is the, the inspiration of, perso- of determination. He personifies what it is to be in a startup. But my good friend and my co-founder, Joe, uh, in the midst of the recession, he uh, still had to get up and to go to run a marathon, which was 151 miles long through the Moroccan desert, something called the Marathon de Sable. Um, the guy collapsed on day two. He collapsed again on day three. He still got up. He ran the marathon. But uh, to cut the story a little bit shorter, Bob, he raised a big, big sum of money for the marathon that he ran back in 2009 through the desert. Um, one person who gave him a lot of money back uh, in 2009 was a wealthy uh, philanthropist based here in Dublin. Uh, he managed to find a big chunk of change to give Joe to run the marathon. Uh, but that same guy came to Joe about six months after the Marathon de Sabla and said, are you able to tell me where my money went? What was it spent on? Uh, Joe wasn't able to do that. So it played on his mind a bit. Um, and we always tell people, look, we weren't you know, humanitarians by default, but we've become humanitarians, but we, uh, we also are in this to make a profit. But Joe then uh, started toying with, uh, you know, with Bitcoin. Uh, he read the white paper around the same time it came out, heard about Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, and Joe then happened to get interested uh, somewhat later, around the year 2011. He started doing a, uh, a master's degree in the University of Nicosia, Cyprus. They were one of the countries that were hit by a bail-in by the European Union. Um, money was being taken out of people's accounts. Um, and Joe was literally getting the pieces bound in Dublin. And a really shrewd guy here helping him to do that said, you know what, I think the real innovation with this Bitcoin and blockchain technology, it's not the anonymity that people think it brings, but it is the, uh, the transparency. And that same guy helping him to bind the thesis runs a charity where people cycle um, all the way from Dublin uh, over towards Chernobyl in uh, in Belarusia yeah. to help children suffering from, um, you know, who suffered from the nuclear fallout. And he said, you know what, I think the innovation with this Bitcoin, with this blockchain is traceability. We had an idea then that could we apply the technology that we got quite interested in in a real life scenario on the ground in a really tough place. And could we use the technology to trace the same donations. So if Joe was to run the marathon de Sabla all over again, which he plans to do again, the, the crazy guy that he is, in about a year's time, would he be able to tell people definitively where the money went? And that's the technology that we've built. We're enabling people to do that right now today. I guess it's handy when you're starting up a new business to be in business with a nutcase. <laughs> why, would, <laughs> why would somebody decide to run a 150-mile marathon? I mean, anybody that's got well, their you, marbles together. <laughs> you might be right about that. And I'm probably a bit of a nutcase myself, Bob, in that I've done Ironman Triathlon in your good country, Australia. The first one that I did was back in 2009 in a beautiful place called Port Macquarie. Yeah. Um, I've done numerous marathons. But we like the challenge really that they bring. It sounds like a cliche, but... Uh, we, we probably, uh, I may seem a bit calmer on the surface than Joe would be, but I think we both have, let's say, one too many marbles missing now at this stage. And I think you kind of need to, to be like that in order to run a, you know, a startup and especially one in a, you know, with a technology like blockchain, which is pretty nascent. And there aren't really many scalable, demonstrable, you know, applications of the tech. And, you know, people are saying there never will be. It depends. But we thought, look, we've got enough marbles missing that we filter out the noise. We stick to what we need to do. And um, 
it, it just seems to filter out noise, this, the lack of marble. So probably a good thing. And I think something that a lot of entrepreneurs do have in common, regardless of where they are, be it in Silicon Valley or LA where you are or Australia, they've all, all got a few marbles too. Yeah, I think um, if you've got the discipline to run a 150-mile marathon, um, you know, it takes discipline and perseverance and so does a startup. Um, and you've got to overcome all sorts of adversities in both. So tell me sort of step by step, how does this technology work? Why use blockchain? Can't you just use a pen and pad like other people? You could do. Um, and again, I'll give you an example, Bob, of the, the very first thing that we did. It was back in Lebanon in uh, 2015. So um I talked a little bit about the technology, but basically, Bob, we came up with this idea that we would try and bring transparency to a market that was a little bit opaque. Um, The reason that we called the company Aid Tech is that you've heard of FinTech, you've heard of CleanTech, you've heard of RegTech. We wanted to invent a new industry. Um, We took a lot of inspiration from um, uh, a guy called Peter Thiel. You and me briefly spoke about him, um, moving to the city that you're in right now, L.A., etc. But one of the things that Peter Thiel said uh, when he made the investment in Facebook, that was, you know, competition is for losers, as he said in his book, um, From Zero to One. And that if you want to do something big, you really have to monopolize the market. So we were driven by a few different things. We said, number one, we wanted to make an impact. Number two, we wanted to make some money. Number three, we wanted to um, have fun doing it. And um, number four, then we didn't want to have a boss. We didn't want to really report into one because of all those marbles that you spoke about being missing means that you're probably not cut out then for dealing with uh, with bosses and what they, um, you know, how they how they deal with, uh, you know, uh, things. Yeah. So we uh, we had this idea. We thought, look, let's try and bring transparency to aid, according to uh, Ban Ki-moon, the former SecGen of the United Nations. About 30% of aid goes missing each year. We thought that's a big market. The, the 27 richest countries in the world, they give out $160 billion in aid each year. So if you do a quick calculation, that means that about $48 billion in aid each year goes missing. So it's a big market. So with that in mind, we said, okay, what we've got to do is prove that we've got tech that can actually work. We want to prove then that uh, this blockchain technology can work in a really tough environment. So we had an idea that we would approach uh, a charity, and the charity in this case, or the NGO they might be classified was, the Red Cross, they're based here in Dublin, and a really visionary guy who saw the potential of the technology when um, my co-founder Joe really pitched it to him, was that we have this technology, um, it's basically a plastic card with a QR code on it. What you can do is you can send an entitlement to an individual anywhere in the world without restriction, and they can obtain something in return. They can obtain a good product or a service, and you would basically then be able to show your donors, who would be people like Coca-Cola, you know, multinationals, the Irish government, the US government, where money is going. So what we did then was we ran a project on the ground, a pilot at a time back in 2015, the first ever example of blockchain technology being used for impact. We like to tell people that we invented impact on the blockchain. That's become something very trendy right now. But we ran a project where we gave plastic cards with the QR code on them. The QR code then was a blockchain wallet address. Sure. And we gave them to uh, Syrian refugees, 500 of them, in a refugee camp in Lebanon. And then what we did is we enabled refugees to use the entitlements that were sent to each card to buy products from a shop. 
and then basically what they could do is they could they can they could obtain anything that they wanted that could be food that could be water that could be toiletries and we found oftentimes what they were purchasing bob were things like toiletries like diapers you know hair removal kits sanitary products um deodorant etc because we gave people the freedom to purchase what they want but ultimately what was happening was back in dublin uh danny the guy that we spoke about from yeah. the red cross the head of fundraising he was able to see in real time what was happening on the ground in uh, in Lebanon uh, with our technology and that people were getting the entitlements that they should. He was able to show that in real time to his funders that the, the money that you spent, here's where it's going. Not necessarily who was, who was obtaining the product or the good because we want to ensure that people's privacy is protected, but that with this blockchain, because it's immutable, because it's permanent, because it's tamper-proof, you can uh, irrefutably say that your donation was spent in Lebanon by a person to buy a product. And if you believe, like we do, that blockchain is this immutable, um, it's tamper-proof, corrupt sure. ledger, which cannot be changed, that it is arguably then, we believe, one of the few use cases where it makes complete sense to use blockchain. But what we realized then, Bob, was that the real big thing, um, it wasn't just a one-off project that we, uh, we wanted to do but that there were 2.4 billion people in the world, including the refugees in Lebanon, who didn't have any form of identity. But by giving these people an identity, you can then send things like welfare, remittances, aid, donations, healthcare entitlements. I can talk a little bit more about that shortly uh, to them um, anywhere in the world. And you give them power over their own identity. You enable them to build up a profile, like a credit profile, a credit history. And for people then like Danny, who I keep going back to with the Red Cross, he then can build up a more accurate picture of what's happening on the ground in even the most remote locations. And that would enable people like Danny and the people that he works with in the supply chain for these big NGOs to better plan how they target, uh, target and send goods to people on the ground. Because as I mentioned then, one of the things that Danny found out on the ground was that people there in Lebanon were obtaining toiletries and sanitary products more than what they expected, which would have been food and water and rice, etc. So they knew then that if they were to buy these products in bulk, they would be better serving the people that they were they were reaching. But before blockchain came along, before digital identity came along, it was really hard to figure out what was really being consumed on the ground um, by these people. That's extraordinary because I think I I'm, can think of probably a dozen examples of of areas where um, this technology would be suited. Absolutely, perfectly, because once it's it's like the United States government, they give um, they go into a country and they give the military massive quantities of cash, which they just dole out, and they don't know whether um, the people that they've given it to are now living a life of luxury in Bermuda or something, or whether who they've <laughs> given the money to, and it's a great scam, yeah. and this this eliminates that. I think the most the most appealing part of this, from my point of view, is they know what people are buying and therefore can either try to get donations of those products to give or can actually direct to the people exactly what they need rather than guessing. They can, Bob. And one really good example, it's another project that we did recently and it's very similar to what you mentioned there. It was with a Dutch um, NGO. They're called Farm Access. They're based yes. in, um, in the Netherlands. Sure. So what we've done with them is something that we believe is one of the most powerful um, applications of the technology anywhere in the world. And this isn't theory. It's not hype. We've delivered with them. 
but to give you an idea there, it's, it's much like what you described with the, with the U.S. military, except you were replacing soldiers with uh, pregnant women. If you want to plant that uh, that mental image in your head, <laughs> but we are the, at the, at the moment uh, we're distributing medical entitlements to pregnant women over blockchain technology, uh, using a smart contract. Um, so to give you an idea and to try and paint a picture, there is a clinic in a town called Kilwa. It's about five a five hour drive from the capital of uh, Tanzania, Dar es Salaam. Um, but we spoke with uh, with the the NGO. I did a presentation back in in Amsterdam last October. I met a very visionary lady called uh, Teresa de Sanctis at the, at the presentation. She heard me speak about identity and a lot of people being ident- unidentified. And she said, look, we've been looking for a solution now for quite a while that can harness um, identity uh, and it can distribute entitlements to the people that we deal with. So we are now up and running uh, in a clinic, which is in this town that I spoke of, Kilwa, five hours away from Dar es Salaam. Uh, to paint the picture, Bob, what happened before in this clinic was... Uh, the pregnant women, they're given a booklet when they come to the clinic uh, for the first visit. It's written in Swahili. And each time they, they obtain their entitlement, that could be their prenatal care, that could be the postnatal care, that could be the antenatal care. Uh, tests that a pregnant woman would get are the drugs that she would be given, like iron tablets, um, etc., folic acid. It was a completely paper-based process, and a doctor or midwife would scan it. They were literally right on the piece of paper. And that piece of paper is taken away then um, three months after the, the, the babies are born, hopefully very healthily. And that's then taken to a data processing center in Dar es Salaam. And then it's inputted into a system. And then the government and the people who fund those projects are able to look at the data uh, usually three months after that happened, and they can see what happened. And that would be if the information was entered correctly. But what we did there, Bob, was we've given the women on the ground an A-Tech digital identity. Uh, and it, again, it's a QR code, which can either be appended to that same booklet or it can be put on a plastic card. And what they do then is they go to the midwife. The midwife scans the card, uh, the QR code. She can see who that individual is and what entitlements that they are entitled to get on a particular day. And what we're doing is we're saying that, okay, the ideal path for a pregnant woman is at week three, she gets the following entitlements. Week six, she gets these. So we've programmed the smart contract. We've created digital assets representing things like nabendazole, folic acid, ferrosulfate, the iron tablet, and they're being sent automatically to the women who hold these identities. So when they go to the midwife or to the doctor, he knows that, okay, they have received these entitlements and I will administer them at the, um, you know, at the clinic. And then that ultimately that means that the NGO and the people who fund them uh, in real time can see on the ground, you know, are the women getting the right treatment? And the thing that we found, Bob, uh, there was the, the, that particular clinic, they were lacking, um, they were lacking iron tablets. The, the hemoglobin machine was broken. That was something that we were tracking to. And the women weren't getting enough of the drug called nabendazole. So the really startling thing, and the thing that we were really delighted about was that the local health district officer who was able to view this data said, look, we have to get more iron tablets to this clinic in Kiowa because the women aren't getting the correct entitlements. And they were able to make that decision based on the data that was generated on the blockchain and they could see it in real time. And then when the women came back for their uh, their following visits, they were able to see that, okay, now everybody's getting the entitlements that they should. 
And the only re- way, uh, the reason that happened was because the real-time data generated on the blockchain, because we link the entitlements to an identity, we send them out over a smart contract, meant that we, we have created what we believe is something truly groundbreaking. And we're about to scale that up now to uh, 60,000 women in uh, 60 clinics in the next uh, uh, three months. And the, the ambition there is to get that to 1 million women within Africa, which we believe we can do with the partners that we have. And we've proven demonstrably on the ground with technology that this does work. And it's not just theory, it's not hype, it's a working product. Um, and again, that's one example of what we've done to welfare, entitlements. Uh, I can talk a little bit more about them with the other partners that we work with, like remittances with the United Nations. In Serbia, uh, we're doing another project then. Um, uh, we're going to be kicking off in Albania, in China, with the United Nations Development Program. But like you said, Bob, at the start, as you eloquently put it, we can attach conditions to the entitlements that are delivered to those people. So if our technology was used by the U.S. military, we could send an entitlement to a soldier um, via his or her digital identity, and they could then go to a uh, point of sale or to a dispensary and they can obtain what they are supposed to and that's all made fully traceable with an asset on the blockchain um, and you can again put that conditionality with it so you know that people are getting what they should that is brilliant so you need to distribute the plastic cards or whatever it is and do you also you'd also need to provide readers so yeah, we, we can do a couple of things, Bob. We can either give people a plastic card, which is, you know, a pretty rare scenario. Yeah. But with the technology now that we have, it's based on, a, it's a web-based app. Yeah. So it can work on any mobile phone with a web browser. Um, we, we've tested it as far back as Android Jelly Bean, which was released in 2012. And that's uh, Android being, a, you know, the, the yeah. common, bro- uh, common operating system around the world, particularly in the developing but we can issue identity in the form of a, either a plastic card or it could be a mobile phone. And when you get the, uh, the web app within your phone, you can go to a section, it's called My ID, and there you will see a QR code that would represent your identity as it is um, on the blockchain. And we separate in the personal information from the individual, so nothing personal would be stored in the blockchain, but just the uh, transactional information. Sure. Yeah, I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize that even in refugee camps and and in some of the places that have got hideous conditions around the world, there's a hell of a lot of cell phones. But I guess there's a lot of people that don't have them too. So how do you how do you address that issue, or or don't you? This yeah, point? and we we do, Bob. And what we do is there is we would rely on the partners that we work with. Um, if you think about the, the reach that some of the, the great partners that we have, people like the United Nations or the Red Cross that they would have. They typically have operations around the world in uh, multiple countries, you know, uh, pretty much every country in the world. So we would partner with them in the case of distribution of plastic cards. We can literally send them, you know, a file that they can print with the QR code. They can then use our technology to assign the identity to an individual. Um, And that can be a matter if you take the example of somebody like an aid worker, they're on the ground. Uh, they can either print the uh, the QR code locally as a sticker. They could put that on a card. It could be pre-printed. They would scan the card with our um, our application. Or the information can be loaded beforehand, and they can distribute that then to the individuals. And the individuals then can use that at the uh, at the the point of sale. That can be with a merchant, with a shopkeeper, with a utility company, with a dispensary. 
um, and we would cater for both of them. But uh, for us, ATEC, as you know, a, re- a relatively small startup, we would rely on the partnerships that we have with the, uh, the big companies um, so that they can take care of the logistics, the program management, the project management. And we then focus on what we're good at, which is developing and delivering a blockchain platform for them to uh, piggyback on. Absolutely brilliant idea. So apart from delivery of aid, um, I'm thinking of things like um, entitlements, government entitlements for um, new parents. A lot of companies, countries around the world give bonuses for people to have children and they do all sorts of things. Um, apart from aid, what, what are the other major uses yeah, we, we've got quite a few, Bob, and we've, we've, we've deployed all these already. It's not theory, but um, another big one, Bob, at the moment is uh, remittances. So remittances being a, a huge market, it's worth about $460 or million, billion dollars each year. Um, the global average, according to the World Bank, would be 7.6%. So that means if you send $100 from a country like the United States back to a country maybe in Central America, take Guatemala, for example, the fees there could be really high. Yeah. And generally, the rule of thumb, Bob, is that the, the less developed the country is, the higher the fees are. And ironically, then that's where, you know, the money that's swallow, swallowed up by fees is, you know, needed the most. But we are partnering at the moment with uh, the United Nations Development Program, um, uh, and a big, another major Asian bank at the moment. And we are running um, projects um, where people are able to send, uh, like you mentioned, one of these entitlements. So to give you an example of what we're doing in Serbia with the United Nations, this is a project that was recently signed off by the, uh, by the, the prime minister, by the, the mayor of a town called Niche. We are enabling the diaspora from a number of different countries. They're able to send um, a conditional entitlement back to their loved ones on the ground in Serbia. Uh, and remittances there is worth about $4 billion a year to the local economy. Right. But what they want to do in line with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals is to ensure that, uh, number one, the remittance fees fall below 3% by the year 2030 and that they eliminate remittance corridors of greater than 5%. But what we're enabling people to do is to send um, a, a non-cash-based remittance to an individual on the ground. And again, the key being the digital identity and then they're able to make a payment to either the gas company or the electricity company or the grocery store with the non-cash based remittance that they've received to their digital identity. And again, we've managed to bring the fees way down. We've partnered with, uh, with Stripe um, yep. a payments company, again, started by a couple of Irish guys, now worth about $9 billion based in Silicon Valley. They're called the Collison Brothers. Uh, and we are, we're taking that market on then and we're going to scale as we speak with that. We're live in a number of countries in Serbia probably being the, the best example of that technology at the moment. Um, another one, Bob, that we're doing right now, we've got a product called uh, Trace Donate. And if you look up tracedonate.com, what we're enabling uh, members of the public to do is to do peer-to-peer donations from right. one person to another. And the person then on the ground holds an ATEC digital identity. You can send them a donation in the form of a digital asset. Again, that could be like your utility, your, sure. ga- your gas, it could be cash. And we're enabling them then to obtain products from merchants, our good, our service. And then you as a donor get a notification in the form of either an SMS or an email. It's sent to your mobile phone. And I would tell you, Bob, your donation was spent in Lebanon 
buy person X if they choose to, to reveal their information yep. to buy product Y. So again, that's a really big consumer play at the moment. And that's something that we've, uh, we're deploying right now with the Irish Red Cross. We're going live in the Pacific with another NGO very shortly. And that's a product that's built, it's up and running, it's been deployed. And again, donations is a huge market. And normally what happens with your donation is that it ends up in a big pile and you're reliant then on the NGOs to report back on what happened with manual, paper-based, oftentimes, or a spreadsheet. But with this, bringing in the blockchain, bringing in identity, bringing in the different people and bringing in the digital asset, we can prove that you can show people where their donation was spent and you can make it completely transparent. And that's a really, really big one for us at the moment. It, it's brilliant because it cuts out the middleman who is often the person who makes all the money. It really does. And you spoke, Bob, about the idea of the, uh, the so-called bag of cash. Uh, yes. we, we've got a partnership with, the, with a really big bank, and they've told us that, look, we will send money from places like Kenya into South Sudan because it's literally the only way to get the cash there, that they haven't got the infrastructure in place. And we know as soon as that bag of cash hits the ground, people, unfortunately, do put their hands in it and it's distributed then amongst, you know, maybe a corrupt few and then a little bit trickles down to the people who really need it. But with the platform and the technology that we've built, we prove that we can bypass all that. And I'm delighted to say then that we've been doing it since 2015. Brilliant. Niall, unfortunately, we've run out of time. That 33 minutes and 11 seconds went very quickly. Um, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, you can find out more about ATEC. I absolutely love this. I think this is brilliant. And it's, um, it is so needed. It can, it'll cut out enormous amounts of money that goes to third parties across the world. And it doesn't matter whether it's remittance, whether it's um, entitlements or whether it's aid or whatever. There are always people with their hand in the till. And uh, unfortunately, they get away with it. If you want to find out more about both Aid Tech, which is A-I-D colon T-E-C-H and Nile, go to aid.technology. That's A-I-D.technology, where there are a plethora of stories and articles. And uh, Niall, thanks very much. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show. You're listening to us on Voice America Business Network across the world from Hollywood Boulevard, California, and this is where technology meets entertainment. Now, research shows that female employees at startups own less than 50 cents in equity for every dollar owned by male employees. Now, we know there's a gender gap between men and women, particularly in tech, where the difference is about 80%. Women earn about 80% of what men earn. 
But when it comes to giving out equity, they get 50% of what men get. So 50 years after the Equal Pay Act required employers to pay men and women equally for equal work, how's that worked out 50 years later? Average salaries are still unequal. Women earn 82 cents for every dollar earned by men. But in equity, there's an even bigger pay gap. So while women make up 35% of equity holding employees, they only hold 20% of the equity. And for female founders, it's worse. Founding women had 40 cents in equity for every dollar held by men. Now, since equity is often more valuable than salary when a startup succeeds, this equity gap is a trap that continues to exacerbate the overall wealth gap. In some cases, equity discrimination is absolutely blatant. At certain tech companies, female hires got half the equity for the same role as male peers, despite identical salaries. So you give a bit on one end and you take a lot on the other. But women are also underrepresented in high equity leadership roles. So to address this leadership vacuum, California recently passed a law requiring public companies, 20% of which don't have any women on their boards at the moment, to put at least one woman on the board. But for now, it's up to startups to do a much better job of hiring women at every stage of growth. So come on, guys. You know, let, let's make it a even playing field and may the best man or woman win. Now, there are currently four reasons why I think it's wise to invest in crypto. And crypto, apart from the big surge last night, that's another reason. Firstly, blockchain's the future. Blockchain's decentralized, unchangeable and transparent. All data can be collected, verified and viewed and all of this without an intermediary. In the case of Bitcoin, transactions are processed in the blockchain, but it is also used for many, many different things. Blockchain's already in use in over 1.7 million businesses, including stock markets, banks, finance firms, insurance, real estate, legal, and a plethora of others. And companies using blockchain include Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Walmart, Chase, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, UPS, FedEx, and a whole heap more, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. The second reason, Bitcoin is the original cryptocurrency. Bitcoin's currently the largest, most popular, and best-known cryptocurrency with a current market share of 37.1%. It has two attributes that make it valuable. It was the first and because it's rare, it will likely function as an investment opportunity. There can only ever be 21 million Bitcoins, and there will never, ever be more. This makes it rare and highly connectable, collectible. And when you think it went up $1,000 last night, so one Bitcoin went up five, it went up $1,000 last night. Number three, it's got high approval. Many companies which operate on extremely high sums of money are already operating in the crypto market. There are credit cards that, that enable you to shop using crypto. You can use your credit card to buy almost anything. In the US, already thousands of businesses accept Bitcoin. 
um, when my wife and I were in Europe recently, we saw pharmacies, florists and department stores all accepting Bitcoin. And number four, it's potentially highly profitable. As I said last night, it went up $1,000. That's 25% in one day. So if you had bought them yesterday, you would have made a lot of money and it's continuing to go up. It's not going to, it's not going to slow down. But keep in ma- mind that the market's volatile. You know, cryptos can go up 50% in one day, but they can also lose 50% in a day. But I believe that you cannot go wrong if you buy out of the top 15 cryptos. And I think you can't go wrong if you have Bitcoin and Ethereum. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. As I say every week, anybody can be ordinary. It's easy. Just walk out in the street and have a look at them. Millions of them. You don't want to be one of them. You want to be special. So if you always try to be normal, you'll always be boring. So I hope you can join me again next Tuesday when I'll again be broadcasting across the world from our studios on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. In the meanwhile, I hope you have a fantastic week. Continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.